Well, good morning, Crossroads. So good to be back with you and to be able to welcome the Westside Multisite and our online viewers for our worship here this morning at Crossroads. I can tell you truthfully, there is no place this side of heaven that Kaylee and I would rather be this weekend than right here in worship, in fellowship with you all at Crossroads. We have missed you more than we can say over the past two and a half years, although our last time together was actually two years ago this month when I was called back to have the funeral message for our much-loved worship pastor of 22 years, a Timothy of Crossroads, a man like his namesake in the Bible, a man after God's own heart, a man who was like a third son-in-law to me. David Reinhardt. But as you know, there were two additional caskets at the front of this worship center that day. David's daughter, 17-year-old Sophie, a beautiful, gifted, committed young lady. David's mother, Ruth Ann, a lovely, faithful, gentle saint. And there had to be 4,000 people packed into this 1,500-seat worship center, the gymnasium, the chapel, and the atrium that day. What a tribute to their character and their faith. I'll never forget it. And of course, you know we didn't really lose them. We know right where they are today, and it's the very same place that all of us who are in Christ are bound. Well, for those of you to whom I might be a new face. And that might be all of you because the last time I saw you, I didn't have this, uh, this growth. Um, Kayleen and I had our 50th wedding anniversary in 2018. And, uh, and so we went to Alaska for 11 days. And while I was gone, I, I didn't shave that entire time. And when I got home, I kind of shaved around this. And she said, I think it makes you look younger. We're going to go with that, folks. We're going to go with that. But for some of you, I know I am a new face, and just by way of review, you should know it was Easter Sunday of 2006 when I was officially introduced to this great church as the new senior pastor. And from the start, from the very start, I promised the elders 10 years. So my tenure was actually established from the very beginning of my ministry, and I was 59 at that time, and that really sounds young to me today. But as we approached our 10th Easter together, I alerted the elders that I expected to retire in the late spring of 2016, and they would have been glad for me to stay on, but they understood and they supported my decision. So then in February, it was announced to the church, and I concluded my ministry in May of 2016, three months later. And I want to tell you, our years here at Crossroads provided Kayleen and me with some of our most cherished memories. I remember the last Easter in Roberts Stadium with a record 9,106 people in attendance. We filled Roberts Stadium. I remember the weekend that we shared in a record 213 baptisms in one weekend. And the record average attendance of 3,739 for the year 2013. 
and the generosity of our church as we became debt-free seven years ahead of schedule and at the same time quadrupled our missions giving, including, as you heard this morning, the most generous church support for virtually every Christ-centered mission in the city of Evansville. And you would probably not know this, but consistently from the year 2006 to the year 2016, Crossroads, this church right here in southwest Indiana, was in the top ten of supporting churches in the nation to both the North American Christian Convention and the International Conference on Missions. Well, enough of the reminiscing. I, I came to preach the Word and what a captivating theme has been chosen for these next four weeks. It's lifted from Paul's second letter to Timothy. In one word, it is the word entrusted. And today we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 1 as we focus together on the truth that we are entrusted with a message of encouragement. It was Dwight L. Moody who is credited with reminding several pastors at a conference, every time you preach, remember, there is at least one broken heart in every pew. And I have concluded that he greatly understated the prevalence of discouragement in the lives of real people. If I were to ask you this morning, what is the worst thing that could happen to a person? You might answer, well, for my child to die or for my wife to be unfaithful or to be diagnosed with a terminal disease while you're still young or to have to declare bankruptcy or for my husband to be deployed to a war zone. And these are very real trials for people in today's world. I remember here at Crossroads, we always began our monthly elders' meetings by dividing up into three or four groups to pray for 30 or 40 minutes by name for every request submitted by our church family. And each month there were literally scores and scores of prayer requests, and behind almost every one of those prayer requests request was a discouraged person. And I think it's this consistent need that we all have for encouragement. I think that's the reason why most everything in the New Testament from Romans 1 to Revelation 22 is written. It is written to encourage Christ's followers, to lift them up, to build them up, to encourage them. Now, I know that for some of you this morning, the theme of this message may be a little bit irrelevant because things in your life are going along quite well. You don't have a felt need for encouragement right now. You're healthy. Your family is thriving. Your job is secure. Your finances are good. Your church is strong and united. And in short, your life is very fulfilled. But you need to be ready for the uninvited. You, needed, you need to be ready for the unexpected because you don't know what's over the next hill. You don't know what's over the next rise. And Jesus promised in John 16, in this world, He said, you will have distress. And it's true. Trouble will come in the form of failed health if you live long enough. And your family is likely going to go through some stuff at some point along the way. And there's more than one reason why you might become dissatisfied with your job. And financial reversals negatively impact people every day. And listen, 
The church is targeted by Satan more than any other community because it is the household of saving faith. And ever since Acts chapter 3, right after the day of Pentecost, when the church was established, Satan's agenda has been to cause trouble in the church and to divide God's family. For others of you, this theme this morning may be like someone throwing you a life preserver that you desperately grab onto because right now you're about to drown in personal pain. So this morning, whether life is going along swimmingly or you are going under for the third time, I want us to look together at God's Word to learn some truths that will fortify us for those unavoidable times when life seems to collapse in on us and bring discouragement. By way of background, 2 Timothy, in A.D. 67, four years after Paul wrote 1 Timothy, Christianity had become a stench in the nostrils of Rome. Christians had the audacity to refuse to acknowledge the emperor Nero as God. And to make matters worse, Nero had convinced the populace that Christians set the great fire of 64 A.D. that destroyed half of Rome. So Christ followers by 67 A.D. when this letter was written had become the official enemies of the state, subject to torture and execution. They weren't fighting back, you understand, but they were experiencing extreme persecution. And the Apostle Paul, caught up in the undertow of the swelling wave of persecution, now found himself in prison in Rome. Once before it had happened, and he had been under house arrest, but under house arrest people could come and visit him, they could come and go. And he had the expectation of release, but now he's literally stuck in a hole. I've been there. I've seen where he was imprisoned in Rome. It's a spider hole in the ground without any hope of acquittal, only anticipating execution. And you talk about injustice? And it was under these bleak conditions that Paul wrote this second letter to Timothy. He's writing him for the last time, calls him my son in the faith. So 2 Timothy is very emotional in tone. It's very urgent in tone. And the entire letter applies to anyone or everyone who has ever been tempted to throw in the towel. Have you ever been there in life when you were ready to throw in the towel? This letter reminds us that the gospel is worth the struggle that God is faithful to help us and strengthen us and uphold the truth of His Word. And in this final imprisonment before His death, Paul remains faithful. Even in the middle of hardship, he found a wellspring of joy that could not be quenched by his discouraging circumstances. How can he be encouraged at a time like this? What was his secret? In this passage, I think it's bound up in three words. Gratitude, confidence, and purpose. First, gratitude. Look at the text. Paul writes to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy. My dear son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, Timothy. 
I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Paul begins his letter to Timothy offering prayers of thanksgiving and he expresses gratitude for Timothy's sincere faith and he cites the spiritual influence of his grandmother and his mother. In verse 4, Paul said he recalled Timothy's tears. Did you catch that? I think there was something about Timothy's tears that encouraged Paul because it was evidence that Timothy was true-hearted and wholehearted. He knew that Timothy's heart was in the things that are unseen, the things that matter most in life. And so he was encouraged by his tears. And Timothy needed Paul's affirmation and Paul's reminder to focus his faith. I think Timothy probably was discouraged. He might have been wondering if the gospel message could overcome or even withstand the storm of heresy and persecution that was raging throughout Asia Minor. He might have begun to question whether the infant church was really worth the anxiety. So what do you think? What do you think? Is it worth it? Is it worth holding on to your faith? when you have a prolonged health issue, when you're being ridiculed at school, when you're being marginalized in the workplace? Is it worth it when you're spiritually forsaken by your spouse? Is it worth holding on when you're disappointed by a trusted mentor or you're betrayed by a trusted friend? Is it worth it? Is it worth it when you are the object of verbal abuse or slander or misrepresentation in the community or on social media? Yes, it is worth it. So how do we survive the bad stuff in our lives until it goes away, until it subsides? The Apostle Paul would say, focus on gratitude for your Christian leaders and friends. Verse 4, focus on gratitude for the faithfulness of your family and loved ones, verse 5. Focus on gratitude for the gifts God has given you to use for others, verse 6. Focus on the Spirit of God in you, verse 7. The Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, be thankful. He would say for the Holy Spirit because He gives you power, He gives you love, He gives you self-control in your life that you wouldn't have if it were not for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Don't take these gifts for granted. Take them with gratitude. I want to tell you that when I feel discouragement starting to take up space in my head, discouragement starting to take up space in my heart, I focus my mind on the people who have contributed positively to my life and my faith, my maternal grandparents, my mother and dad, 
my wife, my children, my grandchildren. I focus on how blessed I am with forever friends and forever family, and I focus on the Spirit of God who lives in me and makes me more than equal to anything that life throws at me. And I can tell you, when I was here at Crossroads, I was regularly filled with gratitude for our elders, church leaders like Jack Arney and Todd Bussey and Bill Agnew and Dan Ahrens and Alan Mounts and Larry Woods and Tom Slade and Jeff Whiteside and Larry Grippenstraw and Randy McGuire. And I praise God that many of my co-workers back then are still in the yoke of elder leadership here today. And I want you to see them like I see them. I want you to know them like I know them. First, Matt Volkman, chairman of the elders. Matt is one of the most Christ-like men in this church family. He and his wife, Julie, have invested so much in Crossroads, especially, as you Westsiders know, especially the Westside multi-site, which would not exist today if it were not for Matt's family. Faithfully every week, that family, the Volkman family, was right under my nose, right down here in the second row, receiving the implanted word. Brian Gower, such a faithful husband and father. He and Dawn have grown up and grown older with Crossroads. I almost said grown old with Crossroads, but Brian and Dawn often front and center, singing, leading worship, serving in student ministry. Brian has delivered so many inspirational devotional moments in our assemblies. And their three young adult daughters and their families are a living tribute to the sincere faith of their parents. Tom Webster. Tom and Brenda are another great Crossroads couple. Tom has invested hundreds and hundreds of volunteer hours to Crossroads, donating his expertise for many years as the main HR officer at Whirlpool, one of the biggest or not the biggest employer in the tri-state area. And by the way, these two make better candy than Stephen Libs, and that's really saying something. <laughs> Phil Stiver. Phil and Jan have been faithful to Crossroads through the decades. I consider Phil an exceptional Christian leader, and his value has been recognized by Focus on the Family, where he serves as chairman of the Physicians' Council for Focus on the Family, Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'll never forget being with Phil when he led a team of 43 of us Christian men into the Wabash prison for four consecutive days of intense ministry with 43 inmates, all of whom made decisions for Christ. Paul Special. Like every one of our Crossroads elders, Paul and Lori have been intentional about discipling their four daughters. Paul has grown up at Crossroads, and no one in our church is more gentle and kind than Paul Special. His pastoral heart for people is huge. Brett Hurt. I remember Brett when he became our elder. He was our youngest elder, and I've never seen a man more honored to be chosen to serve as an elder. 
And no elder has been more unselfishly committed to his leadership role than Brett. A dynamic small group leader, a dedicated shepherd, Brett and Kendra stand tall for the Lord in our community and in this church family. Dave Elsner. Dave and Carol are two of the most humble and sweet-spirited people here at Crossroads, another model small group leader couple. They take their family life and their church life most seriously. Jesus is truly Lord of this couple, and to know them is to love them. Randy Schultz. Randy and Ann have been faithful Christian leaders in the larger community. Randy has served as a Crossroads elder and a Bible teacher in the Evansville, Newburgh area for years. Many lives and destinies of men, some far from God, have been changed because of Randy's compassionate counsel and his prayer life. Paul Lingy. Paul and Emily are two of God's best. Missionaries in Muslim countries, Muslim-dominated countries for many years, serving alone, unheralded, unnoticed, such a heart for the nations. And with his Bible education and his degree in business, Paul is the gold standard for an executive pastor, a truly humble servant, lover of God, deep lover of God and people. I sincerely miss working with Paul on a daily basis. Friends, these men have been a band of brothers for Crossroads through many years. I know, because I have been yoked with them as a fellow elder. And we never failed to have unity of spirit, not for one single day. It's probably why we never had less than a 97% congregational vote on anything. Our church family knew that our elders were united, and so our church was united. We were committed to each other. We served together. We strategized together. We were not just co-workers on the weekends. We were friends through the week, and we entered into each other's professional lives and personal lives. And these men have given untold hours of time meeting, praying, shepherding, and counseling over many years. And what's in it for them? You ask, what's in it for them? Two things. One, the joy of sacrificially serving the church of Jesus and advancing the cause of Christ in this world, in this generation. And number two, the satisfaction of seeing Christ formed in you. And since we're talking about gratitude, take a look at this verse in Hebrews 13, 17. Be grateful. Be grateful for your church leaders and defer to them because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. I want to ask every man who has served or is serving as an elder and any of the 13 pastors of Crossroads that are in this assembly to stand right now along with your supportive wife. Right now. Would you do that? Past, present elders, present pastors, your wives. Stand.
That's enough. You're, you're cutting into my sermon time now. It's encouraging to be appreciated. I don't care who you are. Timothy had to be encouraged when Paul, sitting in a cold prison as an enemy of the state, wrote to him and said, I am so grateful for you, Timothy. Just seeing you gives me joy. But there's more in this text to encourage us. Besides gratitude, there's also confidence. Look at verse 8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, Paul said, or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Suffering, Paul says, may last for a time in this life. But he said, we suffer for the truth of an eternal message that God created us. And in spite of the fact that we have sinned, He loves us all. And He's destined us all for salvation through Jesus, His Son. If we submit to His loving Lordship, this is the message. This is the testimony about our Lord for which Paul was willing to suffer, and he did suffer. And the truth of the good news of the gospel not only gave Paul confidence, it gives us confidence as well. Just look at these verses, 1 Timothy 3, 4. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the righteous one. Will you let these truths wash over your spirit today? God is on your side. He is for you, not against you. Does that not give you confidence? And do you understand that it is God's grace and forgiveness that provides this confidence that elevates us and encourages us. Paul said in verse 9, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of His grace and friends, His grace that has been entrusted to us is for us to extend to others in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities. Right now, my wife and I are working with a family that is struggling. The mother and her 21-year-old daughter are alienated from each other. They're separated. The daughter has moved out of the home. And why this standoff between these two Christian women, you ask? It is the unwillingness of either of them to do anything to break the log jam. Both believe strongly that the other needs to apologize, so neither is about to apologize unless or until the other asks first. And they're stuck. And they're wasting days and months and years 
potentially. Listen, my friends. The hardest forgiveness to grant is the forgiveness that is not asked for. The forgiveness that has to be extended without a deserved apology. But that's the forgiveness that our Heavenly Father extends to each one of us. Look at these verses, Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, at the right moment, Christ died for who? Ungodly people. Romans 5, 8. God shows His love for us because while we were still sinners, there it is, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, if we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, while we were still enemies, now that we've been reconciled, how much more certain is it that we will be saved by His life? And so because Christ died for us, and because while we were far off, He brought us near we extend His grace to others. Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins against you, go. Go to them. He said, if you have offended anyone, go to them. Friends, this is not a contradiction. Jesus wants people to be going to each other, meeting each other, to be reconciled, whether you've been offended or you have been the offender. Brothers and sisters, as our Lord hung on a cross, He prayed for the Jewish leaders who for envy lied about Him and subjected Him to illegal trials. He prayed for the callous crowd who called for His blood and taunted Him, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross. He prayed for the Romans who scourged Him, humiliated Him, pierced His hands and feet gambled for his garment at the foot of the cross. Jesus looked out through his own blood, sweat, and tears and said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Have you ever had to forgive anyone like that? Have you ever had to forgive people who were clueless? about the wrong that they were doing? Have you ever had to forgive people who were doing something wrong, something that hurt you, and they thought they were doing the right thing, but it was the wrong thing? You see, the Jewish leaders and the crowd and the Romans, they thought they were doing the right thing when they crucified Jesus. And it was the wrong thing. It was unjust. It's criminal. And what did he do? He forgave them. And then, and then, <laughs> he went on and destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's not what I call the human response to offense. To forgive and then to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel, to destroy death for the very people who are your crucifiers, your offenders, that's not the human response. That's God's response. And what He did gives us great confidence. The good news of the gospel is an incomparable message of encouragement. One final piece of encouragement from our text, besides gratitude, besides confidence, 
His purpose. That's in verses 11 and 12. Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet, this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. You know, it's a very encouraging thing to have a life purpose. People who don't have a life purpose many times exit life early by their own hand. Living a meaningless life is a scourge. It's encouraging to have a life purpose, and one of the best-selling Christian books of all time is Rick Warren's Purpose-Driven Life. It has sold more than 60 million copies worldwide. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 90 weeks. That's almost two years. There's a reason why that book was so popular. That book encouraged a lot of people, and it's all about living with a sense of purpose. Now, in his own words, Paul's purpose in life was, he said it, to be a herald. Now, that's someone that announces good news. To be an apostle, that's someone who is sent out into the world with a mission and a teacher to guard the message of encouragement that had been entrusted to him. That's in verse 11. At the same time, Paul spoke about God guarding what Paul had entrusted to him. Verse 12, and that's the way it works. We entrust our eternal souls to our Creator, and He entrusts the message of the life-giving gospel to us to share in Evansville, Newburgh, and the world. And my friends, nothing must be allowed to hinder this purpose in southwest Indiana. Paul testifies to his own suffering, and, and yet Paul was not about to let his personal suffering keep the message of Christ from advancing. And we've got to have the same sacrificial dedication to this purpose no matter what. Here it is, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, Paul said, we had courage through God to, here it is, speak God's good news. That's his purpose. In spite, what? In spite of a lot of opposition. Although we had already suffered and were publicly insulted in Philippi. What? Well, Paul was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He was cast out of cities. He was stoned and left for dead. You talk about a lot of opposition. Publicly insulted in the city of Philippi. Yet he said we had courage through God to speak God's good news in spite of it. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Paul said to Timothy, and you'll look at it more closely in a couple of weeks, Timothy, you must keep control of yourself in all circumstances. Endure suffering. Do the work of a preacher of the good news and carry out your service fully. Don't let suffering, don't let a few down days, don't let a discouraging season subtract from you doing the work of a preacher of the good news. 
you carrying out your service fully. Don't let anything bring you down, marginalize you. Don't let any circumstances in your life kick you to the curb in terms of your devotion to making the Word of God fully known in the way you live your life, in the way you think and talk and act and react. Uh, our son Kyle has taken me to school and taught me a lot about avoiding unpleasant distractions and staying focused on this purpose. You know, he's, he's written several books, he's produced several videos for use by small groups. He preaches to a pretty sizable audience weekly, and then it goes out in the radio stations and on the television station. station. So he's broadly exposed. It's not an enviable position to be in today, I'm telling you, to be broadly exposed in this age of visual and social media. Are you kidding? Well, I. I used to Google Kyle's name because I wanted to read the reviews of his work. And most of the responses are, of course, very positive, but some of it written by militant unbelievers, some of it written by pagans, some of it written by professed Christians is ugly, it is mean-spirited, it is uncivil like you can't imagine. Well, <laughs> if it's a war of words you want, just ambush one of my kids or my grandkids. But when I told Kyle about it, about the indignance I felt, he wisely counseled me, Dad, stop it. Just stop it. I don't read that stuff, and I don't want you wasting your time reading it. Oh, okay, son. <laughs> He's right. He's so right, you know. Jesus was hounded by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. There were false charges, threats. There was at least one foiled attempt on His life before His scourging and crucifixion. He continued to preach and teach the kingdom of heaven in spite of opposition and suffering. Stephen, first Christian martyr, deacon in the church, was stoned to death. But it was after preaching one of the greatest recorded sermons in history. And incidentally, Stephen's last words, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. Peter and John, they were beaten, they were threatened, they were imprisoned, they were eventually martyred. But the whole time, I'm telling you, they were undeterred in their mission. They said, we can't but speak the things that we've seen and heard. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the author of 2 Timothy, he was beaten, stoned, cast out of cities, confined, eventually beheaded, but the whole time, the whole time, he kept preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. Stoned to death, left for dead, 
He gets up, straightens himself up, goes back into the city. These church leaders suffered a lot. So I'd like to know where in the 21st century we get the idea that church should be nice. It's not nice, friends. It's dangerous. Sometimes there's suffering involved. You understand, of course, that we are on the front lines at war with principalities and powers that are at work in this world to bring down the church and bring down Christians. And I happen to believe that Evansville, Indiana, in particularly, is the center of the bullseye in Satan's strategy. I think we've been targeted by the enemy here. You think about it. In the last decade, in the last decade alone, CFC has had a split. Bethel has had a split. First Christian has had a split. And now, unimaginable to me, Crossroads has suffered a split. The four biggest evangelical churches on the east side. You think this is a coincidence? I know it's not. I'm not sure why we have been targeted, but I'm strangely edified by the fact that we have been. It tells me that we have the right enemy. We're fighting the right enemy out there in this generation. Maybe it's because we have the largest right to life banquet in the nation here in Evansville. Maybe it's because of these churches and the dynamic influence they have been not only in the tri-state area, but in the world. I don't know for sure why. Strong and truly committed people are going to persevere. They're going to rise up. Sadly, weak and shallow people will disassociate and disconnect and some disappear. But faithful people will stay focused on their purpose to live for and to preach Christ no matter what. Paul stayed focused on his life purpose because of this one overarching reality. It's one of the greatest Holy Spirit-inspired statements ever recorded. I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. So for over 50 years, Cullen Avenue Christian Church, Crossroads Christian Church, has cast a huge shadow of influence for the Lord Jesus Christ in the tri-state area. It has been the dominant voice for simple New Testament Christianity. It has changed countless lives and destinies. It has saved countless souls and families. It has been faithfully committed to the Lordship of Christ, to the authority of the Bible, to the unity of believers, and to the evangelization of the world. And may this be our purpose, your purpose, for the next 50 years, no matter what.
Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you. I thank you for the fellowship of those who know you, love you, and serve you. I thank you for the opportunity today, Lord, to enthrone you on our praises, to open our hearts to you in prayer, to open your word and receive same counsel for discouraging times. We'll all go through it. And I thank you, Father, that when we go through it, that you can redeem our suffering and you can make it matter and you can use it to convict others and even encourage us. So we pray for the encouragement of the Holy Spirit as we leave this assembly today. Help us to remember to have grateful hearts, to have confident minds, and to have wills that are directed by the greatest purpose we can serve on earth to bring other people under the loving lordship of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. <laughs>